Welcome to Scaling Impact, where we decode how entrepreneurs are harnessing the power of the UN Sustainable Development Goals to create remarkable and impactful businesses that drive transformation on a global and local human scale. We explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders and entrepreneurs can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Hormann-Nilsson, global futurist, EO Sydney impact champion and father, and your co-host with Lisa Andrews for Scaling Impact. G'day, so I am sitting here today on the Entrepreneurs Organization's Scaling Impact Vodcast podcast with uh, Sally Irwin from the Freedom Hub. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, today's meta theme is, of course, the UN Sustainable Development Goals and specifically goal number eight, which we'll be addressing, which is all about uh, decent work and, of course, the ability for everyone to participate meaningfully in the economy. Uh, And while that sounds like a a really amazing and audacious goal as well, um, one of the reasons we've invited you, Sally, onto the show is also to discuss the sort of dark underbelly of what is work and the very, very uh, sad and tragic concept that even in the year 2022, we still have to talk about slavery. Uh, Talk a little bit about why this is not a notion that was fully abandoned in practicality with um, legislation against slavery and why there's still such a thing as modern slavery. Well, there's a lot of drivers for modern day slavery, sadly. Poverty, um, yeah, people trying to be displaced due to war or finding trying to find work in other countries. It boils right down to pure greed, to be honest. It's a $150 billion business, so it's not going to go away. And the people that are running that business are after profits. And you can resell a human over and over again and use them to um, to save money and, and not pay people um, and make a lot of profit, whereas weapons and drugs, it's a once-off sale. So, um yeah, it's a really big subject as to why there's many, many different countries with different definitions of slavery, but Australia is the first one to define it um, as because the word modern day slavery is an umbrella term for many types of slavery. But there is seven or eight main big ones that um, include that forced labour that you're probably alluding to with business, but it also includes something like forced marriage. It is illegal in our country to um, to force someone to marry against their will. It includes debt bondage, organ harvesting sadly is happening, um, yeah, servitude, sex trafficking, um, yeah, there's quite a yeah, there's quite a lot of things involved in the definition of modern slavery. We're talking here about UN Sustainable Development Goal Number Eight, uh, promoting sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Of course, and what you guys are doing in this space in a very meaningful way to help people get out of uh, modern day slavery and into meaningful work. I'm curious about your own either eureka moment or when you saw that this was an issue what's the what's the backstory here why is this something that um, pulled on your heartstrings so much so that you went and formed uh, the freedom hub 
That's a great question. Every founder of any, of any social cause has usually got something that's that's changed their lives. So I have a background in um, corporate world and procurement, but my husband was posted overseas as a diplomat. So I took a little break and um, he was posted to the Australian Embassy in Berlin. Um, at the time, we, we as a spouse, you weren't allowed to work on, on the red passport. So I looked for charity work to keep myself um, a little bit more engaged than just cocktail parties and balls. I wanted to be able to have some something to do with myself. So I picked the issue of um, I'd heard about all these young girls being tricked out of Eastern Europe into Berlin, um, being tricked to be waitresses or hairdressers, and when they arrived they've been thrown into a basement and they've been sex trafficked effectively. I really just thought I would be just, you know, using my level of influence um, and the society I was mixing in just to fundraise for them and to try and help some of the little grassroots NGOs that were on this dark street where these girls are allowed to prostitute and they're being watched by the different criminal gangs that controlled them. And I really thought that I'd be just involved in the financings and helping fund and running, you know, making sure that um, as diplomats we were all giving money to a good cause really and that's how it started. It was very much a head decision. It moved to my heart when I actually decided to start volunteering in one of these little places. It was like a needle exchange where these girls could come in and grab a coffee. The ones that could come into this place and have the freedom to do that were the ones that had been so shot up with drugs and so abused they've lost all their self-will and the, the traffickers knew that they'd come back for their next shot of heroin or their next got of food. They get to the point where they actually believe 100% that this man is caring for them because he feeds them and gives them their heroin shot. So there's that sort of Stockholm syndrome, I suppose, but they really, so those are the freer ones. The ones that are still in basements are still being, their wills are still being broken and they're not allowed really up on the street unsupervised. But the ones that, they're really at the end of their lives, to be honest, and it really impacted me enormously for four years um, going into this place and washing blood off women who'd been beaten so badly the night before that, you know, they have to get ready for the next night's work. And and so it was it was traumatic for me. Um, it was life-changing, hence the Freedom Hub. Uh, I couldn't speak their language because a lot of them were from Romania, Bulgaria, you know, the eastern states. So I um, couldn't really communicate with them. I certainly couldn't lobby or do anything about their position because I was a diplomat in a foreign country and I, I can see the headlines, Australian diplomat sent home because his wife was <laughs> um, pointing out all this terrible stuff that's happening in their country. So I, um, I felt very frustrated by the four years. I was silenced, really. All I could do is do what I could do with what I, could, what I had in my hands, which was just being a nice person and helping them and, and feeding them and just helping them with, you know, whatever I could. It, um, but I can now look back and see that that frustration has fueled the work that I'm doing now. It's, um, it, I came back to Australia and found out it was happening here. So one of the turning points for me there was seeing, uh, back to your question, one of the really main turning points for me there was a lady who had, um, her husband had sold her to fund his um, alcohol problem. And so she wasn't a young, naive lady. This is a woman in her 40s. And he had sold her into prostitution to a, to a gang for that. And if she made a certain amount of money every year, she was allowed to come back and visit her children. And this was a turning point for me because, one, I'm a mother, but, two, 
That's all she could see. She just had to make enough money so she could see her kids this year. And there was no trying to talk her out of looking for other work. I tried to find her work as cleaning, cleaning all the diplomats' homes and houses. And the money was just never going to make it. And the, the, the trafficker was, who controlled the money would always just say no. You know, so it was just one of those situations where I just felt so frustrated that this lady saw that that for the rest of her life, that's her goal every year was to make enough money that the trafficker would release to her husband um, to fund his alcohol and that, and then he was she was allowed to visit them. And that is just a hideous situation for any woman to be in. So that really turned my turned me over there. I realised that for the rest of my life I would be working out a way to be a voice for women like her. When I came back to Australia, the turning point for me was someone said to me, well, don't waste all that experience you've had over there. You could probably help women here. And I'm like, what do you mean help people here? You know, I grew up on the North Shore of Sydney. I was just never occurred to me that slavery was happening here in our country. And that was just like, bang. It was like, if this is happening here, I can really make a difference because I can lobby. I can speak the language. I can, you know, I can create a movement of people. So um, that started the beginning of the Freedom Hub. And with that came me researching and trying to work out what somebody who's not a social worker or a lawyer could do in our country. And I'm a businesswoman, so I knew I could come up with some kind of business to fund it. But more importantly, I realized that there was no long-term care for victims of slavery in our country. And so the Freedom Hub Survivor School, we're still the only long-term care. We, um, When they've been rescued by the federal police, they get referred on to the Red Cross for all their basic government stuff like Centrelink and, and Medicare and everything. That's a 60-day program. And then they get referred on to us a lot of the time um, if they want to. And we're about their long-term rehabilitation. And then we fund that through our business. So that's, um, yeah, the backstory. <laughs> Wow, I mean, uh, I mean the the, the human suffering, um, the, you know, the, the the tragic stories here of of abuse and addiction and 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 of course, very unconscious capitalism that's at play and the profitability numbers uh, and the scale of it is, I mean, it's it's harrowing. Um, I'm curious about, you know, how and I, of course. Um, it's also heartening to, to hear that, you know, in, in, the, in the footsteps and, you know, in the, um, you know, you're standing on diplomatic shoulders of giants like Raoul Wallenberg, uh, a Swedish diplomat who helped, you know, so many Jews uh, out of Eastern Europe, for example, and, and using, uh, you know, his diplomatic connections. Uh, maybe in the present moment, there's there's more regulations about what you can and, and can't do. But I mean, similarly to, to his ethos and, and humanism, you've taken something back here to Australia that's making a real impact. Uh, through social enterprise, and I'm, I'm, I want to just tune into that for a moment. Uh, what the Freedom Hub does, how you, you know, how you generate revenue to fund all the important, um, all the important programs that you're running, and also just, you know, what what some of your alumni are doing these days. I know that's sort of three three questions in in, in one, uh, so I'll remind you if need be uh, what they are in in, in turn. Yep. 
no, that's fine. Okay, so um, the business side of things started with me um, just thinking, oh, well, let's run a cafe. Everyone drinks coffee. That's got to be easy, right? No idea. I've never been in hospitality before. And I was, um, I'm was i still to this day shocked at how hard it is to make money in the cafe industry, um, given that it's something that we all visit every day. Um, but it's really got very, very low margins. But we started with a cafe in Waterloo, and then we expanded to have one in Queensland and start running a survivor school up there because there's a lot of harvesters, people tricked into the harvests and backpackers and things up there. Um, so we wanted to run a survivor school up there. And then we've recently, in the last months, opened up a third one. We'll we actually end up closing the Queensland one to save the Sydney one for um, the borders shut and everything over COVID. It got too hard. But we've opened up a second one now in Ultimo. Um, the beautiful thing about that venue, even though it's on the back street of um, Waterloo and it's an industrial area with not a lot of passing traffic, it's a big venue. And so it soon became discovered as a, um, a wedding place. And from there, we've now developed it so that we have got many different, we have corporate launches, We've got book launches. We have um, all, all kinds of things, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And um, there's just, it's constantly, and that's making money, obviously, uh, because there's there's people. And, and really surprised, I'm not surprised now, but at first I was quite surprised at the amount of people who deliberately pick it, not just because it's beautiful, it's really a, a really on-trend on space, but um, because they want to know that 100% of the profits from their event is helping victims of slavery. It's mind-blowing how many people want that. Um, with the cafe side, of course, I immediately realised that I can't be using the money to help victims of slavery, the profits to help victims of slavery, and not then engage in making sure that my supply chain and everything I'm purchasing is not fueling slavery overseas. So I had to start really early days, 2014, um, I had to start mapping supply chains on Excel sheets and convincing suppliers that this is an important issue. Um, obviously, since the Modern Slavery Act's come out now, which we can talk about in a minute, people are now realising that their supply chain is important and we can impact world figures through that. But we were really early days doing that sort of thing and my procurement background with Maya Australia um, really did help me know what to do and how to do that. So it really grew and then the retailer in me from, you know, 20 or 30 years of retailing prior to this um, just thought I can't start a business that um, or start a, a charity where people go, gosh, slavery is happening. I, what can I do about it? And I'm sitting in Alice Springs. You know what I mean? So I wanted to have online retail. So I was also an early adapter of that. So there's a whole lot of homewares and shopping that people can do online and anywhere for Mother's Day, for example. I mean, Christmas, anywhere, corporate giving, people can actually know that even purchasing products, our retail products, is making an impact on on helping victims of slavery in our country as well. Um, and so that's all been going really, really well. Our coffee um, rehabilitates child soldiers. So we call that the Freedom Fighter Coffee. And that's now wholesalers. People are starting to wholesale. And then as the laws are starting to come about in Australia with businesses having to take social procurement where social trade is credited and we won New South Wales Business Chamber's Social Enterprise of the Year um, in 2000. 18 or 19, can't remember. I think it was 18 actually. But so as the word's getting out, people are wanting to leverage their spending. So we're now wholesaling our coffee and a lot of our corporate gifting and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's that's in turn plus all the products that we have that we sell besides us doing our own supply chain, we will be picking obvious things like, you know, um, 
toilet paper that helps build toilets in Africa and, you know, the thank you soaps that help with water and, you know, and so on. So we've also tried to make sure as much as we can, like Bread and Butter Project spread because it helps refugees get jobs. And and so we've tried to also pick um, social enterprises to support in, in our range. Then... The Modern Slavery Act came out and I was part of lobbying that and being very active with that. And I've realised with my business procurement background and our experience that I could actually help businesses become ethical. So I started training mainly small businesses. In the last two years, I've trained over 400 small businesses in how to actually do it. To, to map their supply chains and how to start looking. So basically we've pivoted quite strongly, or I personally have, we've still got our, our retail and all that, all that I've just told you about, but now I'm also leveraging the consulting opportunity that's out there, whereby we can help businesses audit their supply chains, do the work out their risk of assess, of slavery in their supply chains and also um, measure their effectiveness year on year out. So that's, that's been fantastic and that's becoming also a large part of our income. Um, yeah, and we've developed an online um, risk and measurement analysis platform so that people can actually do it without spreadsheets, which is even better. And, and so that's growing. And we're doing a lot of training, both online and face-to-face -face training and equipping people in the issue of modern of modern day slavery. So yeah, so the income's coming back. It was pretty, pretty tight two years ago when I was watching all the weddings and events cancelling and everything like that. So they're all coming back, which is great. And also the consultancy's taking off. So that's really yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about this because um, um, for one of my other podcasts, The Second Renaissance, we interviewed uh, one of the uh, top brass here in Australia for the B Corp movement. Uh, and of course, it reminds me that in many ways, you know, an ethical uh, sourcing approach or an ethical ecosystem of suppliers, in many ways, you know, the supply chain is now becoming the story from an ESG perspective that's going to win the hearts and minds of tomorrow's conscious consumer. Uh, now we're sitting here talking just before Easter, and I, I know uh, one of your, you know, passion topics around this time, of course, is chocolate and whether chocolate uh, and the chocolate we buy is, is ethical. Um, and, you know, 2014, you mentioned uh, that you took a you know a strong approach to this sort of ethical sourcing. I mean, I know even you know uh, leaders in the world like you know or innovators uh, who really sort of you know beat the drum of their ESG credentials, like Tesla. I mean, it's it's quite recent that they have moved towards ethical sourcing of say cobalt. Uh, a little known fact is that 65% of the world's cobalt comes from the not so democratic uh, Republic of Congo, which means that, you know, the majority of us can't send an email or, um, or do a podcast without potentially uh, using, you know, a mineral that might have been sourced through either slavery or, or, or child workers in, in a mine in, in the not so democratic Republic of, of Congo. But I think this mega trend, which is which is so I think humanizing and, and heartening, is that the conscious consumer really wants to know that the whole supply chain is is intact and ethical. Um, 
I know we're one. The third question that I asked you before, which was about your your alumni and the programs you're running, but maybe just a quick comment on on how you're seeing supply chain play out with the with the consumer, uh, either corporate or or, or individuals, and, and then maybe secondly, just a, a comment on, on supply chain. Yes, well, early days, as you said, I was right into this, and I honestly, every time I spoke at any conference, I'd say I believe that my grandchildren, um, so not the generation now, but the next generation, my grandchildren will be picking their hairdressers based on the hairdressing values and what who they're aligning themselves with, their banks and their their shops. And I must say, everybody looked at me like I was a bit crazy. What's been really interesting only in the last week, ComBank have come out with their consumer um, insights since COVID. And it is 100% showing that like COVID's fast-tracked a lot of things, but it's also fast-tracked that because people have rethought their priorities. They've started to see and empathise with humanity around the world and it's scaling that. Environmental in the ESG was the big thing, but the S now, people since COVID is definitely, and of course, Gen Z are all over it. And Gen Y have now come into a place where they're financial, (laughs) which is great for business. And it's one of their main things too. I mean, you know, they're all in their 30s now and they're wanting to put their money and invest money and um, they want to make sure that their money's doing good. So I really believe it's a today issue now. I'm not, I do have a grandchild now, which is quite amazing. <laughs> I can't believe I'm a grandmother, but um, I, I don't think I'm waiting for 10 or 20 years for her to have an income. I, we're seeing it now. It's definitely been fast tracked. And B Corps and businesses, um, this ComBank um, analysis that came out is demonstrating and interviewing and showing that. Over 33% of people are now choosing consciously, um, it, and but the, that age group are right up there. They're, they're working, they're all wanting to make sure and doing research on the different companies that they're, they're choosing to align themselves with. And a lot of them will change jobs to work for a company that um, has a cause. If you align with a cause and have values, your company should do very, very well. Um, and of course, that's one of the main reasons I'm always saying to businesses to align with us because part of their Modern Slavery Act is they're trying to demonstrate that they're giving up or they're working on their supply chains. But it's not just that, it's their business practices and their locations and you know what economies they're funding. Um, but that's one part of it. But if they actually think about their employees, they can actually also have an impact. So there's some businesses that just want to reduce risk and then there's some that want to have impact, you know, and, and you can clearly see that in the way they're responding to the issue of, of the social and of humanity and their governance. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Um, I know the the research. And I mean, when we get invited, I mean, as a, as a futurist and, and a strategist, when we get invited to, to do work with organisations, large and small, uh, oftentimes in our contracts with those, we have to sign off on, our ESG metrics and and modern uh, modern day slavery comes up a lot, which means you, you really need to take a, a sort of a, a flashlight approach to your whole ecosystem of, of suppliers and make sure that you know whether it's in your direct employment or even in in outsourcing or uh, deploying freelancers or whatever it happens to be that um, that you're really shining a light on 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 these issues. Even the companies that don't have to comply, if they are complying, they can sell to. It's a great market opportunity because they can sell to the companies that must. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's something everybody should be doing, but it is also a market advantage to be on the front, on the forefront of this. Yeah. 
What do you what do you say to organisations or, or consumers who think, oh, you know, buying ESG compliant or buying sustainable, it, you know, costs more, and um, you know, is it you know that's going to squeeze our margins? And is that do you see that, or do, you, do you, is there a, is there an argument here that you know you can get more productive with you know uh, le- less costs of inputs, or what are the sort of um, syn- synergies here that are are available uh, and and is the you know end consumer happy to pay a little bit more for for brands that are showcasing their humanist values yeah the statistics 57 percent of people will pay more so that's that's really a good statistic for everyone to know um i think that people um need to remember that the human toll it's not just an it has an economic toll on all economy there's a human toll which we is obvious people are suffering but the economic toll on economies when labor is 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 not being paid correctly and then there's the um illegal side of of the of the profits that's being ripped off out of out of um out of our economy and being put into drugs weapons and bribing governments and and all that stuff that's what's also happening so there's a lot of economic reasons for everybody to sort of go actually it's worth paying a bit more and it's also to me a guideline if someone says you know oh my gosh how can they make that t-shirt for four dollars well there's a why do research <laughs> you can't you know things can't be made so if they're really cheap you know and you're you, you are you actually feeding and, and forcing this um crime to continue just by the fact that you've got something for really cheap so i think um i think people really do need to think and the more we get this message out there the more people will i mean people people don't even realize some first of all some people don't even know what's happening in our country secondly the most the, the exciting figure i shouldn't say it's exciting but this is what gets me out of bed in the morning is that 75% of the world's slavery is in Asia Pacific, which is our shopping ground. It's the business world's shopping ground, the government's shopping ground and consumers' shopping ground. Not one of us can solve the problem, but if we work together and collaborate and we spread the word and people start to realise we can, Australia can impact global slavery. So as a consumer, you might think you're not doing anything, but you are. And being an ex-retailer as I am, I know, and we all know because Big Brother's watching, they know what we have for breakfast every morning, right? <laughs> the retailers know what our lifestyle, what we're doing. If they can see customers deliberately purchasing ethical goods and certified goods, then the retailers will start to move those products up on the shelves. They'll start to invest more time into, into that sort of spending area of, of, their, of their supply chain. So, yeah, there's a lot. It, it, it mightn't feel like you're making a big difference when you buy a coffee in a, it, at the Freedom Hub or whatever, but or it will is buying the right chocolate, as you've mentioned. It actually does because people are watching where we spend our money. Mm. It certainly are. And, I mean, we, we've done some consulting work with the Australian Food and Grocery Council uh, of Australia. And at last year's conference, there was not a single company. These were mostly the the producers of all the foods that we we eat from 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 you know canned and tinned um, things from you know Goulburn Valley Gold and all the way through to 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 the likes of you know Nestle and Unilever etc. Uh, there's not a single there's not a single company in that space that doesn't have sustainability left 
right and center in terms of what they're doing strategically. And of course, they interface very closely with the likes of Woolworths, Coles. Coles has a huge push in this space as well as Woolies. And, um, and of course, uh, they continuously are monitoring through their, as you say, their big data loyalty programs to see what where we're spending, where we're spending our money. Uh, if that's on organic food or if it's on sustainable ethical sourcing, fair trade, etc. So, very good point. Um, where just for people's awareness. Um, you know, people kind of go, oh, this, you know, you, even, even you did not know that this was an issue in Australia uh, as you were coming back from, from Berlin. I mean, what, what industries, where, where, where do you see people, you know, in uh, positions of slavery? Is it all part of the sort of, you know, the dark uh, underbelly of, of the economy or is it in, you know, is it in people being deployed as, as, as nannies or is it in hospitality? Where, where, where do people get taken advantage of? Where should, we, where should our radar be, be sort of attuned to these things? Yeah, so within Australia, we definitely have um, our biggest area is forced labour and forced marriage is the fastest growing. Um, and it's in every industry, right, and, and and it is very much to do with pay with pay in our country. Um, we don't have the big organised criminal gangs and corrupt police and all the stuff that happens overseas, which is why I believe we should be ending, we should be the first country to have no slavery in Australia. But it is definitely um, in every single industry. The area that's being highlighted the most at the moment because the media and because of the Modern Slavery Act has been the the harvest fields and labourers that are having to um, force recruiting into the labour and farming. That's a very large area. Without doubt, hospitality. And, yes, we do have some, you know, brothels and stuff, but, uh, you know, it's, it's under 30% of, of girls that are in sex slavery. So forced labour would be the biggest area. And servitude also. So um, Pacific Islanders or people coming across to work, as you said, as nannies or um, as cleaners. Um, and we also have the cleaning industry is a big industry as well because people are cleaning high-rises at night and know the companies that employ the contractor are not checking that they've been paid and so that's been identified as another big area so yeah there's it's in every industry sadly so from the moment this this gets identified you might get a referral recommendation through through um through other charities and uh through through government uh, through federal police etc uh and then you said i think uh, through the red cross um the red cross has a support for trafficking is the paid government response that government pays them to run the support for trafficking persons program but we get a lot of people from smaller service like youth off the streets youth that have run or have left their families so they don't get married so we'll get youth services referring to us we get a lot of domestic violence centers referring to us because it can go from being beaten up and keeping a job and not telling anybody that this um, I'm in a bad marriage to being locked in your house not allowed to leave unsupervised no phone no bank no friends that's when it moves into slavery so we when a lot of the um, domestic violence people will go actually this is presenting as slavery we'll, we'll refer you to the freedom hub so we, we do get that and then as we're getting more and more known with our weddings and events and all the word of mouth and speaking on podcasts and things like this we get direct referrals where people are ringing us and saying i didn't realize i'm in slavery but i haven't been paid properly or and I've, I've i'm being beaten up and i'm not allowed to you know they've taken my passport or you know all the various indicators that can force people into slavery I, we, we get direct referrals as well and then the programs they're really a sort of a bridge to freedom for 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 your 
stakeholders, your 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 clients, the people you're you're, you're helping. Uh, what do those look like? What are the types of skills? Um, what are the types of emotional support systems that they get to tap into through through your work? We we tailor everything to the individual because they've all come from different. You can have broad areas of slavery, but their experience of the trauma can be varied from, you know, being tied up at night and not being able to move to having a, quite a bit of freedom, but still not, you know, someone's owning your passport and threatening you to be killed if you tell anybody. And so you can go to the shops, but you're terrified. So the level of trauma that they're in will depend on how fast we can actually help them into full recovery. And so all our program is really setting a success, a vision for where they want to be, and then us helping them through we've definitely got about 15 set curriculums that help and that could be anything from australian culture and learning about our slang and 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 living in australia communities where the centrelink offices are and where the libraries are and as simple as that right through to computers to um office skills to you know we've got a load of set curriculum but we adapt every single class and curriculum to the need of that particular survivor so a class might only be two or three survivors because they're in a similar state of mental health but also their language whether they've got good english or poor english or or whatever so it's um it's it's very tricky trying to um, manage that but we've got a lot of really great education coaches that help them and over covid we've had to get a lot of laptops and we've had to teach them all how to use laptops and we've been doing zoom classes and and zoom coffee meetings and and we've even been running parenting classes for some of our alumni that you mentioned earlier we have alumni that have been through our program are back out in the workplace got themselves back on their feet fallen in love with a legitimate guy that's got them married and they're having babies so they've come back because we're their family here and they're free. we've got eight babies at the moment and they're going oh my gosh how do i how do i raise this child what do i do where are the services in australia for children and and so on so it's very very holistic in that regards and one of the beautiful things about the partnership that we have with business the business world and eo is really stepping up in this is um if people we can help them with their modern slavery app, but they often will employ our survivors, even if it's just for a three months work experience, so they get an Australian reference. It's got to be paid work experience for obvious reasons. But even if it's just a, a short term job, it actually helps them skill up to be able to get better jobs later on. Yeah. So talk us through. I mean, I'm imagining probably anonymously, but just you know, in, in broad terms. Um, maybe some of the success stories of where people are being, you know, placed into paid work. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, what, what, what's, what's the feeling? I mean, not, not just that they can stand on their own two feet and, and support a family, but what are some, some heartening stories of, um, where, you know, people are starting to, you know, both survive, but also perhaps thrive in, in their new in their new employment. Yeah, so one comes to mind, she had um, absolutely no English and um, was her perpetrator was a taxi driver. So she couldn't even leave her refuge without, if you see it, you know, she'd have a major trigger and meltdown. So when I first met her, she would we'd have to put on hats and scarves and umbrellas and walk along a, a wall of a building and with a couple of volunteers this side and get her to a park, right? So that's how fearful she was. It was a very, you know, and and her English was terrible. 
Now she's um, working full time. She's trusted with keys to the office to go in and out, you know, because she's the most dedicated worker. Um, so she's usually first there, and so the boss is finally, which is a big deal. So that's she's been doing that um, successfully for a number of years, and she's now having a baby. She's pregnant. In fact, no, actually, she's just had the baby in the last couple of weeks. So there's an example of somebody who was so traumatised, I thought this is going to take years and years and years and years of work. But um, she just threw herself into everything, even swimming classes. You know, I'll never forget the first time um, she's from the Middle East and, and never even put her feet in water, which is a bit strange for Australians as far as we, we can't, you know, imagine that. Um, but she'd never really been into a swimming pool or to a beach. And the first time um, our... Um, swimming instructor just sort of held her and floated she just said this is the freest I've ever felt in my life you know so um yeah we we do a lot of swimming because it's also great and we've got you know a lot of equine equine therapy art therapy uh trauma-informed yoga all these things that really just help them build their confidence and yeah seeing the babies for me is you can't evidence-base that with all the government with all the government research that's required by universities I mean this is a product it's brave enough for any woman to sort of step into the world of motherhood um, it's a big decision but to have the confidence to do that when you've come out you know when they when they run when they're out of their situation they've got nothing just the clothes they're wearing they've got nothing so to get to that point in life's huge so for me it's very rewarding to see so how can businesses i mean you mentioned the entrepreneurs organization it sounds like maybe maybe some of them partner with you or have had opportunities to place um women uh who are on this you know journey of recovery and and, and Survival and, and transformation. Um, how can businesses partner with you? Uh, what would you like to see more of? Is it is it you know opportunities for paid work or how how do we get behind this really really worthwhile cause? Uh, definitely um, opportunities to employ them. That's a that's always a, a great great thing that no one else can provide. Um, I love partnering with companies that do that. But um, So that's one way. Um, another favourite area, which is probably a bit sensitive, but People need to understand the cost of salaries in the Western in the Western world. Helping us fund salaries for people to help them is huge because we're just, you know, we're fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. But I met a lady last week and she's an ex-businesswoman and she's a philanthropist and she just said to me, you know, I understand it's great to be able to help those survivors directly, but if I can help you, you can help more. And I'm just like, music to my ears, you know, and I think if businesses actually do help us with the fundraising side of just putting qualified trauma-informed teachers in place and psychs and stuff like that you know it just makes such a huge difference to the outcomes of the survivors um, and it's hard I mean you, you every single person you'd put in a position they're highly qualified so they're, they're big money compared to you know it is very easy to give money in Africa and feed a village <laughs> because the salaries are so low but in Australia we, we got some big bills to pay so that's um that's another way if a business is successful and they want to actually help they can also help with us um putting um, and skilled volunteering, even just helping us with our, like I, I resent spending money on marketing and we virtually, everything we do is pretty much word of mouth. We few thousand dollars on Facebook a year and that may be about all we spend on marketing uh, because to me that's dollars that I can be spending on helping people so you know people that understand and know how to do marketing well and, 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 and help us promote what we do um, 
on social media, but also PR. I don't even know how to write a press release, you know, sort of like there's just lots of skills stuff that can even save us money or help us get the word out there more. So there's lots of ways. There's so many ways. I actually do have a PDF that I send out to businesses that shows them all the ways that they can, um, nine ways I've got that they can actually help um, make a difference. Fantastic. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Uh, we've got Sally Irwin from the Freedom Hub talking to us today on UN Sustainable Development Goal number eight as a quick reference and plenty of ways for business to get behind this really, really worthwhile cause um, and uh, turn some of these really harrowing human stories into some really heartening you know, success stories. And, um, you know, of course, it was something that we're scratching the surface off, but very, very important work to make sure that um, there's a pathway out of modern day slavery. Uh, Sally, I'm just curious, I want to I want to throw you a few sort of quick, uh, quick fire questions here. Um, when we've learned a little bit about your Eureka moment in, in Berlin, but I'm curious, um, I mean, entrepreneurs always talk about, you know, lean startups and failing fast and all the rest. Uh, is there a particular failure in your life that you sort of turned into a success? Um, do you have a favorite failure of yours that's that's led to some major insights or in your own journey? Oh, my gosh, so many. I think anyone that starts up their own business, I mean, just deciding to go down the cafe, choosing a cafe was like, whoa. Um, it's been a major learning curve. But I, I do think, um, yeah, I think the biggest underestimation of my own abilities is when you're in corporate world, if you've got an HR problem, you go to the HR department. If you have an IT bar problem, you go to the IT department. I had never really figured through that. You go into business thinking, this is my vision, this is my dream, and you think you're going to use your skills. But suddenly I had to learn to John's ambulance to revive someone in case someone, you know, in the cafe had a heart attack. You know what I mean? So just, yeah, that's that's the big thing for me. It was like that you've got to be so multi-skilled. You've got to be prepared to learn everything when you're starting up we spoke a little bit about marketing and and you know creating signal in the noise um if you had a gigantic billboard and you knew that you were going to get lots of lots of eyeballs lots of attention what's what's a meme or a message that you want to put on that billboard I'd probably go with our with our logos, which is the origami or the Japanese butterfly, and the slogan is "small change, big effect," because everybody can do something and small, and it can have a big effect. And we can't often see that effect, but even just having a, an ethical coffee can have a big effect. Um, a small donation can have a big effect. So yeah, small change, big effect. I don't know that people would get it straight away, but it's that's why I chose that slogan and the origami butterfly from the the butterfly effect from the chaos theory. So, and of course, also the beautiful symbolism of, of the various stages of someone going through from a chrysalis and then, you know, blossoming in, into a butterfly. And I, I guess you guys are a really critical component of, of that of that journey from cocoon to, you know, in a, both a literal and metaphoric sense to actually blossoming in, in, in society. Sally, it's been uh, fantastic having you on Scaling Impact. Thank you for all the amazing work that you do. And uh, I urge all entrepreneurs, all business people, every human listening to, to this show and viewing it to, to, to get behind the, the Freedom Hub and uh, contribute in whatever way you can. Uh, Sally, thanks for your leadership and shining a light on this. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for tuning in to Scaling Impact. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and we'd be super grateful if you leave us a great review. For more information about Scaling Impact, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, or our work on sustainable innovation, please check out EO Sydney online. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on Scaling Impact can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.